we've got um, people that we need to employ in our salt works in you know Wyala and Northern Queensland. So, you know, it's my job just to make sure that you know that they they have a job and they've got a family to feed as well. So, it's you know it falls on my shoulders to to keep those machines running and those people employed. So I had to I had no choice. You know, you, you you've got to hustle like you're broke. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Salt, an essential part of cooking that not only enables produce to reveal its full potential, it is an ingredient all on its own. There are many types of salt that all have their own flavour and character. With the heavy impact of the pandemic on the hospitality and aviation sectors, what has happened to those producing high quality salt that normally goes to restaurants and catering companies? Alex Olson and her family have been producing Olson salt since 1948. Alex, how are you going? I'm doing well. How are you, Hux? I'm good. With salt being such an essential ingredient for a lot of cooking, particularly in restaurants and food service and uh, with airlines, what sort of impact have you seen um, during this period of time? Yeah, in the... um... The initial phases of the or the initial lockdowns, um, we you know we saw the same percentages uh, uh, as most um, suppliers to the food service um, industry. So we saw an eighty percent loss virtually immediately, and that was you know into restaurants, um, hotels, catering, and airlines. But because salt covers so much of um, uh, of the food industry. We um, that sector for us is um, is relatively modest uh, compared to um, our traditional salt business in manufacturing, and we've seen a lot of increases in um, food manufacturers using our salt. And I think that's probably because of the pandemic as well. Whereas um, people have struggled to get. Um, you know, international foodstuffs, they've gone back to um, Australian foodstuffs, which is, you know, on the whole, a good thing. But uh, yes, definitely that high end of town, uh, restaurants, catering and airlines just, well, airlines was 100% gone, um, like many of our um, fellow um, food manufacturers. But, um, you know, hopefully it won't be too long before we can get on get on the planes. There was a, something you mentioned there about people are using local produce more there's a a lot of the salt that we eat isn't actually from Australia but during this time we've seen a reverse of that because of the situation can you tell us about that I don't I don't really know what the volumes are coming from overseas but I do know that we've um, we've experienced a a sharp increase in um, in consumers buying from us directly via our website Um, both Peppy Sayer and I noticed um, we pivoted pretty quickly, you know, being um, sort of family owned businesses, you know, the health of the business is on how fast you can change and move with the time. So we did some, uh, a nice quick step and uh, sort of moved a lot of, tried to move as much business we could over to the retail sector. And that's really worked for us. You know, the Australian um, consumers certainly have come on board and using it a lot more. Um, But I, I don't know what the, 
what the import status is on things like Molden and Sel de Garon and some of the Cypriot salt. And But uh, we're certainly doing some good business with our domestic market in terms of retail products. Well, can you tell us about the process of making your Australian sea salt? How long does it take? Um, it depends where you are and it depends um, predominantly on the weather. Um, our uh, salt works in Wyala make salt relatively quickly, that is to say between 9 and 12 months. But um, our salt works up in northern Queensland um, sometimes takes a little bit longer and that's mainly because of the tropical cyclones which dump metres and metres of water, fresh water back on the salt pans which sort of dilutes the salt back again. Can you take us through the process of actually making salt? What, what's involved? Well, sea salt is a bit different to um, like mine salt, like the stuff you get from Pakistan. Uh, we take uh, seawater um, from just on the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef in our northern Queensland salt works and the um, Great Australian Bight or Spencer Gulf down in um, our Wayola salt works. And um, we capture those in what we call primary ponds and that feeds a succession of ponds um, and the salt gets more and more heavy in, uh, in salt as the uh, water evaporates. Um, to make really good um, sea salt, you need to be in places that have really high winds. And Wyala is perfect because it's got um, about 300, minimum 300 days of sunshine a year and lots and lots of wind. And that whips up the water or it creates a greater surface area for the sun to evaporate the water. And, um, and then it got, finally goes into, um, once the old, um, the old fellas um, who sort of manage the, the waters, they can sort of see that the salt is ready to drop out of the water. And then the, the water, that heavy brine is fed into crystallizer pans and then the salt drops out of the water. And it, um, it's beautiful. It, it's lovely to see it love to have you down there one day and um, watch the salt crystals fall out of the water from the top to the bottom and forming lovely crystals and beautiful sea salt. Well, I have seen amazing photography of, of this and the, and the water looks pink. Why is that? It's um, a, micro, a range of microorganisms um, that contain something called beta-carotene and that's the basic... Um, the basic colour component of things like pink flowers or carrots, um, and it's um, it proliferates in um, in uh, marine bacteria, and it's eaten by things like brine shrimp, and also, funnily enough, um, flamingos, because that's what turns the flamingos pink, and um, it it yeah it proliferates in heavy brine. And that turns it pink. It, uh, our salt's not pink, though. Um, it is a living organism, this little beta, this microorganism with beta carotene that makes the beta carotene the pink or the orange. Um, and so it, does, um, it doesn't survive the dry salt. It has to be a brine or a wet solution for, for the little um, bacteria or microorganisms to live. So once we get, um, take the salts out of the water, it immediately is white. So the... The pink doesn't stick to it. But anyway, it's delicious. It's just not pink. <laughs> you produce salt in different regions of Australia. And we're talking about how um, the flavour and character is in different salts. How do you explain the flavour and character of salts? And do they differ with the ones that you produce? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of people um, 
you know, when they talk to me about salt, they, you know, say, oh, isn't salt just salt? And um, I'm being a bit of a, a smart mouth, I always go, oh, well, yeah, oh, isn't beef just beef and isn't wine just wine? But of course, you know, it's not because, you know, these things like beef, wine and olive oil, they're quite complex um, uh, structures. But And salt's really simple. It's um, sodium chloride, NaCl. And so I like to compare it to water or mineral water. And salt, if it's a natural product, should have character. It should talk about where it's from with its mineral components, whether it's marine mineral or, or terrestrial minerals. Our salt tastes like the ocean and it should taste like the ocean, you know, when it's not over-processed and we do nothing to our salt. Like we take, literally take it out of the heavy brine, wash it in seawater just to sort of get any dust and stuff that's sort of fallen from the environment. Um, we, we wash it with seawater and we dry it, that's it. So all of those beautiful uh, components that make it super tasty are still in the salt. When you get um, salt manufacturers that over-process, and I don't know what that process is. I, I don't have any knowledge of, of how you would do that. But I've heard people say that, you know, people use bleach with their salt to make them whiter. And, you know, there's this long processing. You can denature salt of the marine minerals or any minerals around it to make it just sodium and chloride but it becomes quite um, bland and boring it doesn't have any character it doesn't have any provenance and water is the same way if you denature water of all the minerals that are contained in it you get something that doesn't it's not a tasty thing you know when you have beautiful spring water that comes you know directly out of mountain springs it tastes delicious and that's all the minerals and um, trace elements that make it delicious but if you take all of those out you get something that might be wet but it doesn't have any flavor it doesn't have any character salt's the same way can you tell us the difference between table salt and sea salt because that's the common sort of uh, that that you see on the market sh in the in the supermarket shelves yeah we 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 have what we call sea salt sea salt is a is um a grade of salt or a particular crystal size um, with very tight specifications um, and it can be sea salt it can be um, river salt or lake salt it can be mine salt like you know the salt you get from Pakistan it can be a whole range of salt it just hits those um, those uh, specifications dictated by um, food standards whenever country often you'll find that um, to make it pour well and to make it sit on the shelf, um, there are particular um, chemicals that can be added to it. And um, you'll often find that there's not a lot of love sitting around those very inexpensive products like you would expect. Obviously, you know, if we've gone to the trouble of making a beautiful salt, you know, you it takes time and it takes effort, and uh, sometimes um, cheaper products don't re well sort of reflect the, the the love and attention that are put into them in terms of their price. You've done a lot of projects with uh, food producers as well, and uh, when Giovanni Pillu began producing Botaga in Australia, I know you were involved. What did it take to create something um, to to for the process of Botaga? That was great. You know, spending time with uh, Kondamitsis and Giovanni Pillow is always going to be so much fun. They're such charming men. Um, Giovanni is from Sardinia and he wanted a salt that was like the salt they found in Sardinia, but he wanted an Australian salt. So we actually took 
I made a bespoke salt for him. I made it. We went through quite a, a, we went through a lot of versions, but we did some salt from our South Australian pans mixed with the, the heavy marine mineral salt from Northern Queensland. And I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> that formula, um, but he's. We finally found. We we did some percentages of each, and he finally said, "No, this is exactly what I would get in Sardinia." So he wanted to make an authentic botaga, but with a hundred percent Australian ingredients and with um with Con's know-how and our salt. Um, it's a beautiful, authentic botaga, but with, you know, with a hundred percent Australian ingredients, which is a beautiful thing. You've also uh, developed some great relationships with with other chefs and restaurants, and you've even produced a smoked salt with Ross Lusted. Can you tell me about that? Oh, it was another lot. That was a lot of fun too. Yeah, Ross and uh, Charlie Costello from Pialago. Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. It took a lot longer um, because it, it was just a concept. Um, uh, we wanted a smoked salt, and I kind of wanted an Australian. By the way, smoke salt for Australians. <laughs> Don't use wattle barks if you're trying to smoke something because uh, it's poisonous. And I learnt the hard way. <laughs> Pretty crook for a couple of days after I tried that one. But yeah, we used to. Um, wow. <laughs> it's, yeah, who knew? Um, a lot of people, apparently, except not me at the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we settled on red gum because it is readily available. The red gum's readily available. We went through a couple of nut woods and a couple of American woods. But, you know, I really wanted something different. And Ross, um, who's worked in the States, you know, loves that smoky flavor. And we were just lucky enough to know Charlie down in um, down in Pialago Smokehouse, who was happy to come on that journey with us. And, you know, Ross is, um, has a peerless palate and... Uh, he knew exactly what he wanted in his head, but it's really hard to sort of say what you need if it's just a sort of a concept. So we went through a lot of versions of what we needed and Charlie's, I was going, oh, no, not another 12 hours, Charlie. Not another 12 hours. What's going on here? You know, another 12. And then Ross would go, no, another 12. And I'd be terrified, quaking in my boots. Going, Charlie, could you do another 12 hours? No, I can't do another bloody 12 hours. But it was, in the end, we got to three full days, about 72 hours. And then Ross went, yes, wow. that'll do. That'll do. So it was good fun. Good fun. But again, wonderful men and such fun. We've seen our culinary landscape change quite dramatically in the last 15 or 20 years. What, what's it been like from your perspective with salt? Has, have, have our understand, has our understanding of salt changed in that time? Oh, absolutely. We've, um, I think um, when about 20 years ago things started to change, there was a few, um, there was a few producers back then, but Australia, Australian producers have really only been applauded for their provenance in the last 20 years. Whereas you go to Switzerland and, you know, and, and France and Italy and Spain, and they have those areas that specifically make one thing, you know, whether it's, you know, Hamon Ibirico or whether it's Grana Pandana or, you know, going to France and having the Appalachian control, controlled Appalachian areas. And so they've had hundreds of years to develop these systems and pride in in their produce. And, you know, the population applauds the producer. The producer gets better and feels the love. But it's only really been uh, – and there might be a couple of exceptions, but it really has only been the last 20 years where Australian producers have started to feel as though they have permission to, to be that artisanal producer. And uh, you see it, you know – 
look, there's just too many now to to name them, but uh, there's just some wonderful products, and be it cheese or um, or or beef or lamb. You know, these people producing very specific delicious food and luckily you know it was the right time now we've got the chefs who use that and only use those things and are proud to use those things and tell people about it yeah good time to be in Australia your family has been producing salt since 1948 how how did it all start well we actually started producing salt blocks for sheep and cattle in 1948 it wasn't until 1954 that we uh, bought our leases in Waruka in a place called the Peasy Swamp. Who doesn't want pe- who doesn't want salt from the Peasy Swamp, Hucks? <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> and but it was pretty low grade salt. It was pretty low grade salt, and it was um, to as an ingredient, the main ingredient in these salt blocks. And that was during the last really big drought, lasted from the mid 1940s to early 1950. Um, and that's when uh, Australia was riding on the sheep's backs when we were actually you know the the country was making its money from merino wool so these animals needed to be kept alive and the way you can do that is by putting minerals and trace elements into salt blocks to help the animal it doesn't keep them alive but what it does is it helps them eat dry feed it it improves that mineral balance in what's called a rumen because cattle and sheep are ruminants they have that big fermentation tank before their stomachs and they eat the food the minerals help to feed the bacteria that's in the rumen and then when those bacteria that can digest the feed proliferate then they can eat more food and that keeps those animals alive and that's um and then some things happen but and we needed to we needed to steady our supply of salt or not we because I wasn't <laughs> wasn't born then um but my grandfather and father um bought the leases on what was then pacific salt on the peasy swamp in the york peninsula of south australia and then we were offered um we were offered the salt works the old bhp salt works in wayala and we moved our um, production salt production in 1970 up to there the uh, pandemic has not only affected the hospitality sector but the aviation sector has been decimated and you know we're still unsure of when we'll fly overseas again um, but you're the official salt supplier of Qantas in business and first class that must have been a pretty proud moment so proud how did that relationship start so proud yes I still look I love telling people <laughs> that I still love it I'm so stinking proud to be that person I just it's like literally the best thing you can hear that you've already put a smile on my face just by saying that but it is just amazing you know we've sort of we have been around for a while but as far as I know we're the first people in the world to have our brand on board our national carrier a national carrier so I think it's actually a first for the world wow how did that relationship start um, well, as all good relationships do, Hux, um, I was at one of the Peppy Sayer events, <laughs> at Butterball's events, and um, he introduced me to Roger Barstow. And Roger has um, uh, left Qantas, but he was one of the chefs there, and he was doing some procurement. And But it took a number of years for us to, um, to get on board. You know, they're a very exacting company. They really only want the very, very best, and they go to a lot of trouble to get it as well. Um, and then more recently, I've been um, uh, talking to um, uh, some other people. Roger um, has sort of moved 
moved over to um, to another company now, but uh, we've been dealing with the, the procurement uh, crew from Qantas, a guy called David Speck, who's just awesome. And, um, you know, getting that across the line and doing as much as we can, it's, you know, but they've they've taken such a massive hit. You know, I don't know how they're going to look when they finally do some wheels up, but yeah, be hard going, huh? Your product is at the high end, for the high end. It's a high quality, amazing salt. But, you know, a lot of people have salt in bowls at home, open to air. And do you have some tips on the handling and use of salt at home? Well, I mean, winter is okay, but Australia is a pretty humid place. You know, high, uh, salt's, uh, salt is hydroscopic, which means it draws water into itself. And that's because uh, seawater, your salt, sea salt comes from water. So things want to be what they were meant to be. So all sea salt really just wants to be seawater again. So it'll absorb any moisture that's in the air around it all the time, unless it's ultra, ultra dried. Um, and so you've you've actually sort of stopped that natural chemical um, tendency for it to absorb moisture. You know, you take every bit of moisture out and every mineral attached to it, so you get a totally denatured salt. But we don't have the machinery for that. You know, we're pretty low low tech at Olsen's. Uh, so all of our salt will absorb moisture if given the opportunity. Um, all I can say is just keep your lids on, folks. As simple as that, and just and not the salt's fine. If it gets a bit wet, it's perfectly fine. You know, it's just a little bit wet. I mean, if you're breathing in the air that has moisture in it, and some of the salt breathes it in as well, surely that's okay. There are a lot of salts imported into Australia, but I understand you're beginning to reverse the trend and export Olsen salt to the world. Yeah, well, that came to a screeching halt earlier this year. I was literally about to get on a plane to, and to fly to Europe to. Um, to start the process of setting up a distribution over there. And, yeah, well, that didn't <laughs> – oh, COVID-19 put, put a spanner in that. But we are – we have done a, a little bit of export. Um, Singapore and um, some of that Southeast Asian region as well as Japan. Um, and, of course, our great friend Monty from Icebergs has opened a little restaurant in L.A. called Soul Strings of Life. And he's hooked me up with a distributor in the U.S., which is, even though COVID's really knocked them around over there, um, it's doing quite well. You know, online sales are doing well in the States. So, you know, my, my great wish is to um, let Europe buy some of our salt. You know, God knows we've been doing it. We've been doing, buying salt from them for so long. Surely, surely they'd like to return the favour sometime soon. You mentioned earlier that you had to pivot quite quickly into a retail sort of model and move into those markets a, a bit. With uh, What's this period of time been like and will this shift continue beyond COVID? It's hard to tell. Um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but... Um, it was, you know, we're, we've got machinery and we've got um, people that we need to employ in our salt works in, you know, Wyala and Northern Queensland. So, you know, it was my job just to make sure that, you know, that they, they have a job and they've got a family to feed as well. So it's, you know, it falls on my shoulders to, to keep those machines running and those people employed. So I had to, I had no choice. You know, you, you, you've got to hustle like you're broke at that point. So... Um, working hard to turn that around, it worked quite well, you know. Um, I think um, 
you know, the atmosphere of staying at home and not having a lot to do. Yeah, people did get on online um, and it certainly we're not back up to the sales numbers that we do, you know, with restaurants and catering and airlines. But, you know, we've recovered probably, you know, 50 to 60 percent of that, which is pretty awesome in a short period of time. And, you know, in the fullness of time, we probably would have all always done that. But, you know, you can never ignore an opportunity you know, if when you're in business like this, um, you had no choice. You just you've just got to go hard. You think, well, this is a perfect opportunity. You know, we're not getting we're not getting the business through um, through restaurants and hotels and catering. So, so that that sector is closed completely. So you've you've got to hustle like you're broke. You've just got to work it. What what do you have? What have we got now? And it's worked really well. And everyone's just been so supportive. I can't tell you the. Seriously, the sales have been fantastic and it's all Australian and it's all people loving it. I, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled and humbled at the same time. Yeah, it's fantastic. Do you do a bit of cooking and you know, how do you use your salt? What's one of your favourite ways to use it in the kitchen? I was speaking to Elizabeth Hewson later on, earlier on this morning and I switched her from table salt to using our marine mineral grey salt, which is the really high mineral one, which to salt her pasta water because it makes it taste like the ocean, makes the water taste like ocean water, which is sort of the basis of salting your water when you cook pasta is to make it like the ocean, like just, you know. So that was really – so that's what I do. I, I salt my water with the marine um, grey salt and that's made up in northern Queensland. Um and I was talking to somebody else about um, my gra- my father is an old old bloke now and very plain eater, very plain. He likes, you know, meat and potatoes and so a bit of butter and the smoked salt on his potato. Oh, oh, darling, that's great. That's really good. And that's lovely. Like, so, I, you know, I have very limited amounts of things that I could do. I've got an 11-year-old daughter who likes plain food like her grandfather. So it's generally just that, you know, Australian classics you know, potatoes, meat, salad and vegetable, that's pretty much it. So, yeah, the salt goes down a treat. <laughs> a little bit of flavour to those otherwise, you know, simple foods. What's this period of time been like for you personally? Will, will you, has it changed you? Uh, <laughs> no, maybe. It's a bit hard to tell. Like when we went into isolation, um, I went home to the farm and because uh, there was no school and my, a lot of my nephews and nieces came down to the farm as well and that was great I love that I love cooking for them that's like I'm living my best life <laughs> I just lo- absolutely loved cooking them you know lunch and dinner and the farm crew was there it was just fantastic um but I I'm not sure it did I've always been a hard worker I've always um instilled in in my team that never let any opportunity go and this was just almost like a textbook example of how you never let an opportunity go and even though things can look bad you've just got to make it better you there's no choice you can't wallow you've just got to make it better any way you can and I do have an amazing team with me and everyone has great you know fantastic attitudes and so uh, it was just a, it was a great way to exemplify a principle that I've always had, which is you work hard and you make any situation as best you can. And so that's, that's where we stand. That's how we stand today. Uh, yeah. You mentioned earlier that Europe have been sending their amazing salt to us for a long time and your dream would be to get Australian salt into Europe when the 
borders open up again and we're on planes and it sounds like you might be on the first plane over there. What 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 are you going to say to pitch your Aussie salt to them? I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll get lost in translation. <laughs> like I think they struggle here, like <laughs> listening to us. They go, what is she saying? But, you know, I... I'll do what I always done. I'll just work hard. I'll, you know, I'll cold call chefs. I'll, you know, walk into hotels and ask to see the executive chef. Exactly what I did in Hong Kong and Singapore and Japan. I'll just keep on doing the same thing. But, and I'll say that to them. Surely, surely it's time you bought some of our salt. Surely. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you can't be, you can't be a, a shrinking violet when it comes to these sort of things. And uh, it's served me well in the past. Well, Alex, it's uh, amazing to catch up with you. Um, keep in touch. And uh, we've had, loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. And we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.